Let me read 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1 in its entirety. Uh, this is the word of God, so please take heed how you listen to it. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger or young men, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that that at the proper time He may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, lion seeking to devour someone resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world and after you have suffered a little while the god of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in christ will himself restore confirm strengthen and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever amen by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Well, as we come to this final chapter of 1 Peter, we run across three themes which may at first appear to be somewhat disconnected. He moves from elders to anxiety to peace. How are these things connected? Are they, in fact, connected? I believe that they are. And, in fact, not only are they connected, but they're necessarily tied to one another. They're building upon one another. In other words, that these three things go one after the other intentionally in Peter's mind. Here's what I mean. If you have poor leadership in the church, you'll likely experience worry in the face of a dangerous adversary who's out there in the world seeking to devour you. And if you're ill-equipped due to poor leadership, you'll have anxiety, which is the opposite of peace. But on the other hand, when you have humble leaders who care well for you, who feed the flock, this enables you to stand firm in the faith, resisting the enemy and casting all your cares upon God. This leads to a life of peace, even in the midst of suffering, which as we've seen throughout this letter, is part and parcel of the Christian life in exile. So this morning, I want us to see two things that suffering exiles need in order to stand firm in the grace of God during the fiery trial of this earthly pilgrimage. Two things that you and I need in order to stand firm in the grace of God during the fiery trial of this earthly pilgrimage. We need leaders 
who care for us humbly, and we need to be equipped to resist the devil firmly. We live in an age where spiritual abuse is rampant, perhaps no, no more so than in ages past. I don't presume that there's more spiritual abuse happening in churches today than there was 100 or 200 or 500 years ago. But certainly what spiritual abuse does happen in churches is being examined with greater attention and scrutiny. And this is a good thing. Not the spiritual abuse, of course, you understand, but the fact that it's being observed and accounted for and scrutinized. We should want good leadership in the church, shouldn't we? And we should be never content to see bad leadership covered up or excused away. We should want the scrutiny of Scripture to examine the work of those who have been entrusted with leading the church to ensure that you, the congregation of God, the flock of God, as Peter calls you, are being well cared for in the church. To be sure, not all who cry wolf are actually in danger. I don't mean to imply that the church to movement has gotten it all right. There's certainly abuses of claiming to be abused. But the fact that there are any sheep in Christ's church who are being abused by wolves in sheep's clothing ought to alert us and frankly anger us and cause us to want to take appropriate action. Well, Peter gives us a few things that we ought to consider about the right kind of leadership, the kind of leadership that we deserve as Christ's people and that we should desire as Christ's people, especially if we're going to live and survive life in exile. We need leaders who care for the church humbly. Notice the humility that Peter begins his exhortation with in verse 1. Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. He doesn't place himself above them. He places himself alongside of all these other elders. And let's just be clear about who Peter is. Peter, without question, was the chief among the apostles. He was their spokesman. In Matthew chapter 16, at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked, who do the crowds think that I am? And some of the apostles speak up and give an answer. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter spoke on behalf of the apostles for a reason. He, almost uniquely, aside from two others, was invited up to the top of the Mount of Transfiguration in order to observe the glory of Jesus breaking through his fleshy veil for a moment in time. Peter was given a privilege that most of the apostles were not. Likewise, he and James and John were invited into the bedroom of Jairus' daughter when Jesus raised her from the dead. Peter, along with James and John, was invited to go deeper into the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus sought their help in prayer as he himself was preparing for his crucifixion. Peter was a witness of Christ's death, he says, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's to be revealed. He ran to the tomb with John and ran into the tomb to see the empty tomb. I witness he saw Christ and walked with him and talked with him and touched him and ate a meal of fish with him over a charcoal fire. He was personally restored by Jesus in John chapter 21, at which time he alone was given specific instruction to shepherd the sheep of God. He had all the training and experience 
and responsibility that on paper far outstrip any other elders in the church of Christ at this point in history. And yet he does not come saying, I have a PhD in life with Jesus Christ. He says, I'm just like y'all, an elder under the chief shepherd. What humility. This is remarkable humility. He doesn't place himself above anyone. Rather, he puts himself in the same boat with the rest of them. We're all elders, he says. We're all under shepherds of the chief shepherds, and we all need to be humble towards one another, which is what he says later in verse 5. This is remarkably Presbyterian, by the way. This is the way our churches are designed to function. We recognize that we are all, all elders, all ministers in the church are, as one person has put it, under rowers in God's boat. We all pull together. We strain against the same currents. We fight the same rogue waves. We're trying to serve the same ship's captain. To be sure, some of us are pulling on different oars, and sometimes the left side of the boat is working harder than the right, depending on the weather, but we're all under the same captain in the same boat, pulling the same direction. So here in the opening of Peter's remarks about Christian leadership and what it means to have humble elders in God's church, we have the idea both of plurality, Peter says, me and y'all, elders, all of you who are supposed to be together serving Christ's church, we have plurality and parity. That's not like, this isn't going back to the ship reference, there's not like a parrot here, you see, I'm not making a reference to, parity means equality. We have plurality and parity here in verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 5. That's the way Christ's church should run, should be led. There are many hands, and no one hand is more important than any other hand. Not to imply, again, that some hands are not called to slightly different roles in exercising their oversight, but no one hand is exalted above the rest. It's also noteworthy in Peter's humility that all he does when he exhorts the elders of the churches to which he's writing is he quotes Jesus. That's it. Peter simply takes Jesus' words and feeds them to his fellow elders as an encouragement to shepherd the flock of God the proper way. Peter does not come in and say, I've written a book, How to Shepherd Jesus' Sheep 101, and I'm going to sell it to you at a discounted rate because you're my friends. He doesn't say, I've put together a blog, 10 ways to make your church leadership more effective by Peter, the apostle, capital A. He hasn't made a documentary that says, look at me and all that I know. All he does is quote Jesus. Look at it. He says in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that's among you. Do you remember in John chapter 21, which we've already referenced briefly, that after Peter had denied Jesus three times, went back out to his old life of fishing, Jesus shows up on the shore, and Peter, recognizing him, jumps in the water and swims in and falls down in front of him, and they share a meal together of cooked fish. And Jesus is intentionally restoring Peter threefold for the threefold denial which Peter was guilty of just a few days prior. In Jesus' restoration of Peter, he asks him the question, do you love me, three times. And Peter, growing increasingly frustrated that Jesus doesn't seem to be hearing him, says, you know I love you, you know I love you, you know all things, I love you. After each one of Peter's answers, Jesus says something to the effect of, feed my flock, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. 
The second exhortation that Jesus gave Peter, tend my sheep, is the exact phrase Peter uses here, shepherd the flock of God. All he's doing is telling the elders, you want to be a good elder? Do you know what your church needs? They need you to be like Christ. And they need you to do what Christ wants you to do. Good leadership in the church is based on Jesus' words and example, and the example of those who follow after him, who model their lives after his, who look like Christ in both their private and their public lives. It's simple. Leadership in the church is really simple. Elders are supposed to be Christ-like. What a shame then that so much spiritual abuse happens in churches today. So much. So many sheep are being abused, their fleece being shorn off and their food being stolen out of their mouths, their hurt hearts not being healed and their brokenness not being bound up. So many self-proclaimed shepherds are feeding themselves, padding their lifestyles and protecting their dominion at the expense of the tender and helpless sheep. Now, I choose the words tender and helpless intentionally, and perhaps you've heard me say this before. Don't let anyone tell you that the reason the Bible uses the metaphor of sheep for Christians is because sheep are dumb. The reason the Bible uses sheep as a metaphor for Christians is because sheep are helpless. We can't do anything apart from Christ. We need Christ and all the salvation he brings. It's not because we're dumb. It's because we can't help ourselves without him. When Jesus looks out on the crowd of thousands who have been following him around for days, listening to his teaching, and he sees them all out there on the side of the hill hungry, he doesn't say, what a bunch of dummies, they should have brought some lunch. The Bible says he looked out at them and had compassion on them because they were lost and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Peter here in the early part of 1 Peter 5 wants you to know and wants the elders among you to know that shepherding the flock of God is according to the model and instruction of Jesus Christ. He gives us three parallel yet contrasting approaches to leadership that we need to practice as leaders, and I'm speaking to myself and to the elders here now and to those who aspire to the office of overseer, which Paul tells Timothy is a noble thing. Don't miss this. As Peter's about to unpack three parallel perspectives of leadership, the three wrong ways and three right ways to do leadership in the church, he couches all of it under the umbrella of shepherd the flock of God. That's his opening salvo here in verse 2 shepherd the flock of God that's among you, and then he tells them how to do it. This ought to strike fear into the heart of any man serving as an elder or who desires to be an elder. The primary role of elder and minister is not to be one of the decision makers in the church. It's not to serve on a board It's not to fix the agenda that I think should look more like this. It's not to grow a brand. 
It's to shepherd God's sheep. That's it. Shepherd God's sheep. Tend, feed, care for the people of God. This word shepherd that he uses, which Christ used in John chapter 21, has an Old Testament counterpart. And if we were to scour the Old Testament for the idea of a shepherd and look at the way that the Greek translation of the Old Testament connects this word to Old Testament concepts, here are some of the ideas that come to mind. And I want you to think about these in the context of God caring for his people throughout their pilgrimage in the Old Testament. Tending or shepherding the flock of God means knowing them. It means knowing them. It's a personal touch. It means caring about the individual souls of Christians sitting in the pew. It means protecting them, protecting them from false teaching and from dangers. You think of the the great shepherd in Psalm chapter 23 who has a rod and a staff, and he fights away the wolves, and he pulls the sheep close to himself. It has the idea, and this is perhaps my favorite concept of the Old Testament shepherd, of noticing their needs. A good shepherd doesn't walk at breakneck speed from one green pasture to the next. He's aware that in the back of the pack there are some hurt sheep whose little legs can't keep up and whose hungry tummies need to be fed and whose parched mouths need water, and some of them just need to be carried. And he has to notice that, to not leave a trail of broken, dead sheep in his wake, doesn't he? In Exodus chapter 2, the people of Israel are in slavery in Egypt, and they've been crying out to God for deliverance. And in the end of Exodus chapter 2, it tells us that God heard their cries, And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it says the Lord knew. That word is the same word used to describe the intimacy that Adam and Eve had right before Cain was born. He knew in the most intimate way their pain and their suffering and their need. And he saw them, it says. That's what shepherds do. Good leaders in the church know and notice and care for the sheep of God. But don't miss this. That's not the part that strikes fear into the heart of a man. That's the exciting part of pastoral ministry and being an elder, getting to know all of you and care for all of you and your needs and your hurts and your wants and your your personalities and, and who you are and your families. That's the part that excites a man to be an elder. The part that terrifies a man is when we ask, who are we shepherding again? Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God. Think about Paul's words to the Ephesian elders. <clears throat> Back in Acts chapter 20, Paul's getting ready to make his way back to Jerusalem. He knows he'll never see his friends again. And he calls together the Ephesian elders on the shore of Miletus, and he says to them, partly in in concert here with what Peter's saying in 1 Peter 5, that wolves are going to come in from among themselves and try to harm the flock. 
So he warns them about that. But listen to what he says in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, same idea, to care for the church of God, same idea, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, have you ever borrowed a book from someone? Some of you in this room right now, you know who you are. You've borrowed books from me. I have a record. Now, look, if in the course of time, the Lord calls you away from here, and you move to Arkansas, and you're unpacking your boxes, and you notice that book on such and such a topic that you got from me, and you look at it, and you're like, oh, that's Kyle's book. My encouragement to you is to continue enjoying it and read it and find uh, peace and, and wisdom from that book for the rest of your earthly days and pass it on to somebody else one day. I just, I just don't care. It's not that big of a deal. In other words, taking a book from me is not a big deal. Now, imagine you had access to the Library of Congress, which I imagine only one person in this room probably has access to the Library of Congress. But imagine that you did, and you borrowed the most ancient and expensive and rare book, and in your absent-mindedness of juggling keys and holding coffee and this book and all your other stuff, you put the book on top of your car, you get in, you pull out of your winter parking space in Washington, D.C., the book slides off the back of your car, down the back windshield, off the trunk, and into a slush pot puddle. And then several minutes later, a local plow comes and lifts it up with all the rest of the snow, never to be seen or heard from again. I imagine that the visceral response to realizing the book had fallen off your car would be slightly elevated over realizing a couple years from now in Arkansas that you had borrowed one of my books and didn't return it, right? Okay. Who were we shepherding? the flock of God? How important are Christ's people to him? Look at this table. Oh boy. Leadership in the church is not concerned for its own ministry. It's not concerned for its own advancement. It's not concerned for its own stability or prosperity or any such thing, it is concerned insofar as it is concerned for Christ, it is concerned for his people. Too many pastors think of the church as theirs. Of course, there's a responsibility, but not an ownership. It's not my sheep or my people or my congregation. It is Christ's sheep and his people and his congregation. And when we start to think elders and men who aspire to the office, when we start to think of the church as ours, it makes it far easier for us to treat it like a possession of our own. Rather than a treasured possession of God, under whom we are only exercising temporary care. What are the three parallel and contrasting traits of godly leadership? Let me move through this very quickly. 
leaders in the church, according to Peter here, as we move through verse 2, he says, exercise oversight. That's the responsibility and care. Uh, It has to do with the word vision. It has to do with the word uh, uh, vision and having supervision of the church. Not under compulsion, but willingly. So, church leaders, according to Peter, are to exercise their responsibilities not under compulsion, but willingly. The idea here is that elders should love to serve. They shouldn't have to be pushed to serve. It's about having zeal for caring for God's people, not a lazy disposition towards the work of shepherding. If you find your heart, men and young men who maybe aspire to be elders one day, if you find your heart enjoying the business part of the meeting and lamenting the prayer part, there's something wrong in your heart. If you love gathering for worship on Sunday but have no interest in going to visit people on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, there's something about your heart's orientation towards the sheep that needs to be corrected. Jesus himself was this way. He went to the people. He spent time with the people, with the least of the people and the last of the people and the lost among the people. And it tells us in Luke chapter 19 that zeal for God's house consumed him. Do we have a zeal to care for Christ's sheep? Secondly, leaders in the church are motivated by the good of God's people, not the good of their own lifestyles. He says, uh, willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, not to pad your own uh, wallet, but eagerly as God wants you to. They're concerned with God's good and his people's good. By the care they provide, they're motivated, not by the gain they accumulate These men love Christ and his ministry to his people rather than loving themselves and their ministry. They say, with ease, let goods and kindreds go this mortal life also. Their motto is, he must increase and I must decrease. Again, following Christ's example, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give Leaders in the church don't domineer over the flock, but serve as examples in front of the flock. In other words, leaders in the church are pullers, not pushers. They don't drive the church in the direction they want to go. They call the church to follow them as they follow Christ in the direction that he's going. I was recently uh, uh, given an example of what this looks like in a, in a cartoon. I didn't see the cartoon. It was explained to me, so I can tell you who told me this if this doesn't make any sense later, and you can blame them. The idea is there's two panels on this cartoon, and in the one panel, there, it's all stick figures, there's a stick figure sitting atop of a throne on top of a giant block, and in front of that stick figure are ropes attached to the backs of dozens of other stick figures that are pulling the block with the throne on it. And above that guy, it says, boss. And then in the next panel, there's a block, but without a seat on top of it, and ropes attached to the backs of a bunch of workers. And from those workers come a bunch of ropes which tie into one, and at the head of that rope is another guy pulling, and it says, leader. You see the difference? Not domineering over the flock, saying, move me and my block, but being examples to the flock, saying, Imitate Christ, or imitate me as I imitate Christ as we pull this thing together. Elders are to be gentle and godly. Gentle and godly. Elders must be godly. One minister has said, the thing my people need more than anything else is my personal holiness. 
If I'm to be an example to the flock, if my family is to be an example to the flock, then we must pursue obedience to Christ in all areas of life. It's a requirement to serve in leadership in Christ's church. We must be godly. And elders must be accessible. You can't be a good example to people who can never find you and never darken the door of your home. Ministers and elders must be godly and accessible. Do you remember when gentleness was considered a Christian virtue? Some of you are old enough to remember, I hope. It used to be thought of as a fruit of the Spirit, and now it's kind of thrown around as a byword for weak men who don't get anything accomplished. Gentleness is one of the very few terms that Jesus used to describe himself. When was the last time you saw a self-help book on how to be more gentle? Gentleness and corporate leadership. Fortune 500 companies and gentleness. Gentleness on the football field. When was the last time you heard someone talking about leaders as gentle? We want men who are bold and strong and loud and confident and who take no prisoners. I don't mean to imply that being bold and strong and confident have no place in Christian leadership, but they're certainly subservient to meekness and mildness and gentleness and kindness. What image do you have of Christ? It's ironic to me, well, I guess it's unironic, that the people who tend to be the loudest, most boisterous, most abrasive, most abusive kind of Christian leaders are the ones who are really quick to point out that Jesus flipped over a table. And my encouragement to those brothers is to say, once. That wasn't the normative practice of his ministry as our chief shepherd, was it? One pastor has said, the care of pastors for the flock will be proportional to their care for and love of the Lord. This is what the church needs. The church needs humble, godly leadership modeled after Christ. And this is counterintuitive. It, it rubs us the wrong way. It stands in contrast to what the world promotes often as good leadership. Of course, not all secular, secular leadership is bad, but a secular mindset about leadership is what results in the sort of abusive leadership we're seeing so prevalent in many churches today. We need a biblical view of leadership from Christ and the Apostle Paul here, or Peter here. Well, Peter has counterintuitive instructions, not just for the leaders among you, but for you as well, beginning in verse 5. In verse 5, he says, likewise, you younger men be subject to the elders, and all of you then clothe yourselves with humility, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, why does Peter highlight young men? Uh, this is not an indictment, by the way, young men. There are many young men in this room. Young men, if you know who you are. If you're a young man in this room, please listen to what Peter says to you. Uh, he's not implying by any means that old men or ladies of any age or children are not subject to the elders. He's simply highlighting a reality that has plagued young men, especially young men, from time immemorial. Young men, of which I used to be one, often fight against the notion of humble submission to authority. They think they know it all. When they get strong enough, they think they can do it all. 
and they think they're in need of no one's help or, gu- or guidance. Again, this is not an indictment against any young man here, but rather Peter coming alongside you and saying, don't forget, in my heyday, I was the chief young man among the young men. I know what you're going through. Humble yourselves and submit yourselves to the elders in the church. Why does he want you to do that, young men? Because Peter wants you, young men today, to grow up to be elders tomorrow. He wants you, young men, to grow up to be tomorrow's elders and leaders in the church. And he wants you to experience what it means to clothe yourselves in humility and to live as an example to your young friends as an equipping trial for the day when you'll live as an example before the church. Young men, clothe yourselves with humility. Submit to your elders and seek to walk as mature men would walk as you grow in Christ. This posture of humility is mutual across the church, isn't it? It's not about members serving the elders. It's about all of us walking in humility toward one another. Peter has been repeating this refrain throughout his epistle. Remember when he was talking to husbands and wives about how they're to live with each other? He reminds men that your wives are fellow heirs of the grace of life. You're in this together. Not one of you is more valuable in the eyes of God. You have different roles to play in the economy of God, but none of you, men or women, free or slave, young or old, elders or members of the congregation, is more important to God or even more important in the kingdom of God. You are equally to be humble towards one another because you are equally valued by the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't take a bigger swig of the cup at the Lord's Supper than any of you do. The same blood of Christ that covers my sins covers yours. And I promise you, I needed a lot of it. And I still do. It takes humility to join a church. To submit yourself to fallible men who will continue to mess up royally this time of eternity, this side of eternity. It takes humility to come up here in front of everybody and take membership vows to seek the peace, purity, and prosperity of this church and to, and to submit yourself to the discipline and oversight of the elders of this church as long as you're a member of this congregation. It takes humility to be Presbyterian, to follow God's design for church relational dynamics. We know that. Your elders know that. It takes humility to lead in a way that says, I messed up. Please forgive me. Please know that I want you to look to Christ and not to me as I look to Christ as the example of strength in leadership. All of us need humility in the church, every one of us, because God opposes the proud, doesn't he? As we want to see Christ's covenant church exist under the favor of God now and into the future, we need more humility among one another, more humility as we think about hospitality, more humility in homes between husbands and wives and parents and children and children and parents and elders and members of the congregation and visitors and all of the different ministry areas that you are all involved in. We need more humility and less pride, less pride that says, this is mine, that says, I need to be seen and noticed and heard, and I need to have a voice, and I need people to pay attention, and I need to be in charge, less of that and more humility 
among all of us if we want to remain under the favor of God going into the future. That's what this church needs. That's what every church needs. That's why Peter exhorts the elders and everyone to walk in humility towards one another. Good leadership and an abundance of humility does not mean that life in exile won't be difficult. We're continuing to face an enemy that hates us because we love Christ. Peter makes no uh, reservations. He pulls no punches. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Don't forget that he is a defeated adversary, that he is a bound enemy. Jesus Christ came to bind the strong man that he might plunder his house of his goods. All authority has been stripped from him and been given to the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. All authority in heaven and on earth is his. And yet in his anger and fury, he prowls around trying to scratch and claw and devour anyone he still might until Christ returns. And so we need to be on watch. We need to be alert. We need to stand firm in our faith and resist the devil heartily, fervently, together. And that requires humility and good leadership. One of the best ways for our enemy to drive a wedge in the church of Christ is to cause us to be full of pride and not humility towards one another. To give bad leaders to the church who won't feed them according to the word of God. When it says here in verse 9, resist him firm in your faith, uh, Peter is not suddenly shifting the burden of uh, fighting temptation to your own faithfulness to Christ, your own ability to overcome. He maintains the biblical teaching that we can do nothing apart from Christ. And that what we need in order to fight temptation is the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. As the psalmist said, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. In other words, what Peter means when he says stand firm in the faith, resist him, standing firm in the faith, is he's encouraging you by way of your leaders to know your Bibles and the doctrines that we hold to as true in order to fight against the temptations of the enemy. To know truth and not be susceptible to counterfeit teaching. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. What a great verse. Do you know why that's a great verse? Because the God upon whom you cast all your cares is sovereign over all your worries. He's sovereign over all your trials. He rules over every atom in the created universe. There is nothing outside the scope of his rule and reign, and he loves you at the expense of his own son. So when you cast your worries on him, and it says he cares for you, you're casting your worries on the one who is not only concerned, but is able to help you in your time of need. We don't have the power inherent within us to deal with all of our own problems, do we? If you've lived any number of days, you know that's true. We don't have the power within us 
to deal with our own problems. Some things we can handle or take care of from time to time, but not in any meaningful sense. Jesus alone had the inherent power to deal with his problems. Innately, he could have handled all of his problems, dealt with all of his suffering, taken care of all of his enemies. He could have called for 12 legions of angels to show up and defend him against a couple of Roman soldiers and their pitiful swords. He could have spoken a word in his mock trial, and everyone in his presence would have fallen down dead. When he was hanging on the cross and people were walking by mocking him, telling him to come down if you're really the Son of God, he could have said, yeah, you know what, I can come down right now. He healed people with a word. He raised people from the dead. He created the universe and upholds it. He had the power to change his circumstances, and yet in humility and service to us, he entrusted himself to a faithful creator who will judge all things justly. That, my friends, is how you cast your anxieties on the Lord knowing that he cares for you and that he's able to do what you never could. Peter wraps this up as I need to wrap this up with the best word, one of the best words in the New Testament, peace. Peace be to all who are in Christ Jesus. That word peace is a weighty word. It means wholeness. It means completeness. It means being put back together. You and I were broken, lost, without hope and without God in the world. And Christ has come to be our peace, to put us back together, to bring us into fellowship with God. What do we have to worry about in this life when Christ himself is our peace? And all those who are in Christ know that peace because the Spirit has been shed abroad in our hearts. Peter ends a letter about suffering with the word peace. That's amazing. We see someone who's in the middle of suffering and we say, good luck, or I'll pray for you. Of course, Peter prays for his brothers and sisters, but he leaves them with a different word than that. He says, you already have peace in Christ. Do you know that peace? Do you know the peace of Christ? That no matter what happens in this life, bad leadership in the church, a roaring lion prowling around that trips you up with sin and suffering, difficulty in your marriage, difficulty at your job, difficulty in your neighborhood, difficulty in our nation, you cast all that on God because he cares for you and he's already given you peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the word of peace from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Would you help us, God, to clothe ourselves, each one, in humility towards the other, that we might humble ourselves under your mighty hand, waiting for the time that you will exalt us, and that you will wipe away all our tears and cause sin and death to be no more. Now, as we prepare to participate in the Lord's Supper, would you encourage our hearts by faith? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.